Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion and I'm your host. This week's episode is our 24th and it's special. It's the last episode before we take a break for July and in it, we focus on questions we're asking ourselves and that we want to ask of our listeners and our future Ufahamu Africa guests. Our deep dive this week features remarks by Dr. Zachariah Mompili, Associate Professor at Vassar College. The questions that will drive the second half of season one of Ufahamu Africa are those Zachariah leaves us with as he closes his address. Before we share that address with you, let's start with what we're reading and learning from the continent this week. There's a great piece published in Africa as a country called The Right to Eat. It examines the relationship between politics and consumption and how Ugali politics is dominating Kenyan headlines. Ugali is a staple food made from maize, and as we learned in our conversation with Georgetown University's Dr. Ken Apollo, there's been a shortage of and a steep price increase in maize in Kenya this year. In Karen Weitzberg's piece in Africa as a Country, she goes into greater detail about the political economy of Ugali politics in Kenya, and we recommend you check it out. Some good news out of Kenya this week, President Uhuru Kenyatta signed into law an amendment to the Education Act that requires girls registered in school be provided free, sufficient, and quality sanitary towels. Evidence the world over shows how the high price of sanitary products can have a negative impact on girls' education. We're excited to see Kenya being a leader on this. Inshallah, other countries will follow Kenya's lead. Sticking to the topic of girls' education, Iren published earlier this week an opinion piece by Sandra Olson, a program manager at Child Soldiers International, which is a human rights organization that seeks to end the military recruitment of children. Her piece, Hear the Voices of Congo's Girl Child Soldiers, draws on interviews with 150 Congolese girls formerly associated with some of the country's multiple armed groups. The main takeaway from Olson's piece is that girls face significant stigma and discrimination when they would return home. And what did these girls want? In their own words, they wanted to return to school. Check out our website, ufahamuafrica.com, Monday morning, when we'll post links to these pieces we've mentioned, as well as bonus links to other things we found interesting. In this week's episode, we feature remarks by Dr. Zachariah Mompili, an Associate Professor of Political Science, International Studies, and Africana Studies at Vassar College. In 2012-2013, he was a Fulbright Visiting Professor at the University of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. He is the author of Rebel Rulers, Insurgent Governance and Civilian Life During War, and with Adam Branch, Africa Uprising, Popular Protest and Political Change. The remarks we are sharing were recorded during the ALAC-sponsored workshop Zachariah and I co-organized at Smith College in early May this year. When we proposed the workshop to the ALAC, our original title was Researching and Teaching African Politics, Everyday Politics, Power, and Protest in the Digital Age. As we watched the movement to decolonize the curriculum gain speed across the continent and even in the West, we didn't really change the direction of the workshop, but we did bring greater focus to how the study of African politics in the West privileges a canon in which African scholars are largely absent. Have a listen to what Dr. Zachariah Mompili had to say in opening our workshop. When we first began discussing this workshop, Kim and I were struck by the increasing disconnect between what was happening on the continent and the tendency to continue viewing Africa through very traditional scholarly approaches. We wanted to interrogate the basic tendency to continue to understand the continent as primarily rural, 
pre-modern, tribal, and disconnected from broader global trends. This was especially problematic in the context of the economic and political trends that have been unfolding. We know what these are, economic growth fueled by Asian investment in the commodity sector, increasing economic stratification, urbanization, the diminishment of ethnic ties in political and social life, the youth bulge, increased militarization of bilateral relationships, the decline of organized violence, the neoliberalization of higher education, so on and so forth. But many of these trends have been absent from the passes for African politics in leading American political science journals. The question of decolonization has roared back in many ways, and many of us, I think, are frankly shocked by uh, this reemergence of, of the decolonial debates, having consigned them to an earlier era. era. Decoloniality, though a diffuse and contested concept, and I'm hoping we can interrogate it much more today, uh, poses a fundamental challenge to modern forms of scholarly inquiry in the West that have increasingly insisted on the application of scientific tools to fairly abstract concepts. I want to spend a few minutes talking about this, both my own work and for American political science research on the African continent. And I know we're not all political scientists, but I imagine it might be relevant for other disciplines as well. To give an example, my own research is engaged broadly with the subject of democracy. And if you think about what democracy has come to be, we often understand it in relational terms as compared to dictatorship or fascism or so on. We should support democracy, we are told, because it is better than the alternatives. If you look at how the study of democracy has proceeded alongside the exportation of democracy, particularly to African countries, we see that the logic of how we understand what democracy itself means is shaped by the opinions of a small set of global elites who promote a very narrow and highly technical understanding of democracy in which it is reduced to a core electoral logic. This creates a tendency to study democracy as merely the exchange of electoral victories by a ruling party and some sort of opposition party. If you look at the quantification of the study of democracy, this tendency to enumerate it into a set of binary categories, elections, rights, including free speech and the right to property, civil society, all of which are understood as universal, of self-evident value, and morally, morally preferable, is pervasive. Instead, I would suggest democracy and its component parts should be understood as the product of specific histories, related more to broader political and economic logics. Democracy is not something that should only be understood relationally. It has to be understood as a system that articulates a set of values, beliefs, expressions, and ways of being. From the perspective of what is happening on the continent and the push for a renewed engagement with the question of decolonization, Africa has always been a funhouse version of this Western fantasy of democracy in the sense that democracy itself is distilled down to its most base characteristics. As long as we witness some version of what we think matters, elections, civil society, and free speech, we have allowed the perpetuation, both intellectually and politically, of a limited understanding of what are, again, very abstract concepts. Our tendency for teleological thinking means that we've always attempted to fit African countries into our stages' conceptions of human progress. Let me just say here real quickly for those of you who are not political scientists, and much of the studies around African democracy rely on various data sets, uh, Freedom House, Polity, which are really these measures of uh, how democratic a society is. And so you get these very perverse outcomes where a country like Uganda, which has been ruled by the same man for over 30 years now, uh, is classified as semi-democratic, because right? uh, they have a parliament and they have something like a free press. So you get these very you know, uh, perverse outcomes uh, where our tendency for quantification uh, leads to these counterintuitive examples of Uganda as semi-democratic, as if that actually has some meaning. Right? Where Ugandans will look at you and say, "Well, yeah, how can you talking about <laughs> exactly?" <laughs> so that's that's what I'm referring to specifically there. 
When I try to understand what is unfolding across the continent, this reemergence of the discourse of decoloniality, um, I see it as a fundamental interrogation of these concepts that began in the 50s and 60s when these ideas were first being exported to the African context and picking up again in the 1980s and 90s with the end of the Cold War and the seeming triumph of the liberal democratic model. So I think we're entering this third moment of a long cycle. The first moment was characterized by a desire to embrace and adapt the institutions of Western modernity. And the second being one in which doubts were raised about whether or not these modes of political life would be able to produce the tangible outcomes they were always promised to produce. What we're seeing now is the inevitable culmination of this cycle, in which this very minimal conception of democracy has always been contested. So my starting point is to come at these questions with a sense of humility, to try and understand what it is that Africans are demanding at this moment, and recognize that in many ways they may be ahead of us imposing the kinds of questions that they've always demanded answers to about the meaning of democracy itself. But even more fundamentally, what do these concepts upon which our understanding of democracy itself is premised on actually mean? Concepts such as civil society, human rights, electoral competition, and so on. We here in the West presume we knew the answers, or we assume that the value of these were self-evident. So when we hear young people raising questions about whether elections are meaningful, whether political parties are relevant, whether free speech and other rights should be sacrosanct, it can be jarring, to say the least. But our instincts should not be dismissed uncomfortable and sometimes poorly phrased, or oftentimes poorly phrased, sentiments, but to try and reckon with the ways they are pushing us to improve our own understanding of what we thought we always knew. And to be clear, I don't think this sort of questioning implies that young Africans are angling for the type of populist authoritarianism that is on the rise in many Western democracies, or even in places like India and Turkey. In too many ways, that is what they've been living with for an entire generation now. Mugabeism, Museveniism, Kagameism, all of which promise to remedy the limitations of the Western, Western model through populist prevarications. I think most young people in Africa recognize that approach is bankrupt. So I don't think this is a moment in which Africans are rejecting democracy itself. Instead, I view it as an attempt to reconcile the promise of democracy with its reality. And that is something we can all learn from as well. These are challenges that are germane not only to African countries, but to our own countries in the West and beyond. This makes it quite difficult for those of us who live in the West to comprehend where all this is going, because in many ways we don't know where it is going in our own countries. I think this is why the question of decolonization has worked back onto the African scene and onto Western college campuses as well. If liberalism promised transformation through the adaptation of modern political institutions and post-colonialism raised questions about the merits of the liberal model, Neither could provide a model for what comes after the liberal democratic moment. Now that we've reached this moment of crisis in liberal democracy, the sense that our institutions are no longer as clearly normatively desirable as we always presumed they were, I think we must pay attention to what's happening in the African context, even if we no longer know where it's going, not that we ever did. This is especially important in this moment, and precisely what is missing in too much political science research, which continues to adhere to particular conceptions of what modernity is, or what democracy is, or what liberalism is, and hence apply them to a whole host of subject areas, either implicitly or explicitly, that we as scholars are concerned with. So where does that leave us? For me, part of the desire for putting this workshop together was to start with the assumption that we don't really know the answers and that we can't really know what the outcomes of these transformations will be. I think the only real option we have is to be in dialogue with Africans, intellectuals, but also cultural producers, political activists, and ordinary people about their pressing concerns. But we must also puzzle through our role as researchers in the West. 
and how so much of the ways we have engaged in the study of the continent has been called into question by Africans themselves. The challenge, of course, is that the United States and the West in general no longer enjoys the intellectual hegemony we did for so long, and that our ideas, even when they were poorly conceptualized and poorly reasoned, benefited from the standing of our countries in the broader global order. To me, it becomes almost an existential question. Should political scientists who study Africa in the United States only be talking to other political scientists who study Africa in the United States? <laughs> and what does that mean for the future of our history? I say all this not because I'm frightened or that I think we're doomed. I think we are living in a moment in which there is a tremendous need to think through these questions and to develop new ways of engaging in the study of African politics and incorporate all these new modes of knowledge production and dissemination. So that is what I'm hoping to accomplish at this workshop. To acknowledge that in many ways the models are broken and that they were always problematic. But rather than sit back and lick our wounds, what can we do to acknowledge our limitations, but also our strengths with a sense of humility about what those really are? Our goal should not be simply to improve the study of a particular region or societies, but to really try and think with people on the continent about our collective developments. And I, I want to hopefully reflect on that idea of thinking with Africans rather than thinking for or thinking about. Uh, to be in dialogue rather than starting from the assumption that we are the knowledge producers who must remake African modes of knowledge and cultural production to suit our own needs. Um, and again, that's a political science reference uh, which we can talk about later. <laughs> Short interruption here, Zachariah's remarks are almost done, and this is when we'd like to focus our listeners' attention. He concludes his remarks with six very broad questions. In our Monday morning blog post, we'll have these transcribed for everyone for further reflection. More importantly, as we said at the beginning of this week's episode, we're going to devote the remainder of our first season to these questions. That means in all of our future conversations with Ufahamu Africa guests, we'll be asking them to think about these questions, offer some ideas, and even pose some questions of their own. Have a listen. Uh, so some very broad questions that I hope we can guide our discussion. Uh, most fundamentally, what does it mean to engage in the study of African politics based in the West? Uh, who is the audience, real or imagined, for our intellectual work? And how do existing modes of scholarly dissemination shape our choices regarding our real or perceived intellectual communities? What are the intended and unintended political consequences of our work? What are the, quote, best approaches for understanding African political life and how is this determined? What are our relationships both to our own institutions and to African institutions and what role do new communications technologies play in subverting or reinforcing these dynamics? I won't attempt to answer these since I'm hoping we can use them as a starting point for our conversations. But I do want to end by acknowledging our own particular complicity, and more importantly, our own unique advantage in reshaping the study of African politics in these ways. Part of the conversations I've already had with several of you, and which I think is important to recognize up front, is that we as professors at elite liberal arts colleges, by and large, are especially well suited to challenge the norms of how African politics has been studied, and more importantly, to develop new ways of comprehending the continent. Freed from the pressures of publishing in only a narrow set of venues with little reach on the continent, and free as well from the assumption that only a specific set of methodological tools are meaningful for grasping the political world, I think we have a particular responsibility to push these questions forward, not only in our own work, but throughout our broader discipline. And that's what I hope we can accomplish here over the next couple of days. Thank you so much.
That's all for this week. Remember that we'll be on a break until the first weekend in August, when we'll feature a conversation with Anna Mwaba, a researcher from the University of Florida studying the African Union and election monitoring. Until then, find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. We're at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. You can email us at ufahamuafrica at gmail.com. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by ALAC and by the Government Department. Rory Moomin, Smith College Class of 2020, is our research and production assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Our featured song this week is Cho Cho Cho, released by Beat Making Lab and featuring voices of children in Goma, Democratic Republic of Congo. Thanks for listening. Until August, Safiri Salama. Goma, when my people need a money. This is what you get when you stand up. The time is now. Send me Wakati. They see me and ask, you know, Tokawapi, where you from? Carolina, but I'm really an African son. How's the African son? Freedom's about to be won. If you get you clapping your hands, nobody's clapping a gun. Uh, poa, poa, Zurisana, and Duguzango, can you feel me? Sawa, sawa.